welcome to Thrive in Design, a podcast about making money and beautiful interiors as it relates to product-based businesses in the interior design industry. Each week, we'll discuss innovative strategies on how to approach product development and design sales in a shifting market. I'm your host, Nicole Lachey-Ben. Welcome back for another episode of Thrive in Design. Today, we have Robert Ansel, who is the CEO of TNI Design, an architectural design agency that specializes in restaurants, hotels, luxury, and eco homes. Based in Los Angeles, Robert has designed over 89 new brands and 800 restaurant and cafe openings and remodels. He has worked or consulted with clients in over 24 countries, from the USA to Saudi Arabia to Nigeria to France and beyond. TNI Design has provided interior design services to multiple high-profile restaurant and hotel brands like Plant Power, Fast Food, Pizarro, Cali Burger, Staybridge Hotels, Hyatt Hotels, Hilton, Royal Caribbean, and more. Robert is also active in the nonprofit world and in his spare time is a photographer. I'm thrilled to have you as a guest today, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm so excited to learn more about your journey in design and have you break down everything, hospitality, restaurant design, and hear all the things today. Let's get started by you telling me where it all began. (laughs) What was your inspiration for pursuing a career in architecture and design? Well, I think I was really pulled into it, probably by my own personality and, and what I enjoyed most. I started off in restaurants, I was in operations, but I would always find myself spending a lot of time just looking at designs and architecture and trying to figure out how things might work better and and just staring at stuff probably a lot longer than I should have. And as my career in, in restaurants, and in those days, my early career was actually in operations, as that progressed, I ended up with companies that were doing multiple openings and I would always be pulled into the design meetings. And it really just grew from there. I guess it was just sort of my destiny. I, I don't know. <laughs> I love that. So as you were working the operation side and you were noticing things that could be better, tell me like, what were some of the things that you were noticing that you were like, oh my gosh, I would love to improve upon this? <laughs> you know, there's so many different things, but it, it's really the location of equipment can make an enormous difference to how an operation flows, you know, especially if you just take a cafe. If you consider Starbucks and everyone knows Starbucks and we've all used them or, you know, sort of bought from them. What I can tell you is, is that someone or probably a multiple of people have been involved in making that operation behind the counter as smooth as it is today. It wasn't like that when they opened, I I promise you that. And I think that's really what I I found when, when I was working in the jobs that I was doing was trying to figure out, well, how do you find that balance between sort of amazing customer engagement and thoughtful customer engagement, balancing that with efficient operations, efficient both in terms of speed of service, but also you know from a cost perspective? And how do you make it easy for the customer when you're dealing with restaurants? The pathway to the bathroom is actually extremely important. Certainly in those days, maybe not so much now, that wasn't really considered. It it was the bathrooms go where the easiest place to put the bathrooms or where there was the easiest place to put them. So it really, as I said, it was just a multitude of things. And then, of course, it was color schemes and 
you know, customers might come in and go, well, that's very bright. Well, they're sending you a message when they say that. And I think all those different messages, let's say, really affected me. And, and, and I would take note of it and I would listen. And, you know, in, in some cases where we had a nice budget, we were able to research that further. In other cases, we would make a decision on, you know, really what customers were saying, that sort of anecdotal, but you know it's true type of feedback. You know, and those are the sort of things that really, you know, I sort of honed in on really very careful. I was just always very careful about how customers perceived an environment. It was it comfortable. Do the chairs work? Um, when I say do they work, I mean, you know, are they comfortable to sit on? I mean, I'm sure everyone listening has been to a restaurant where they're like sort of moving around in their chair and it's not comfortable for them. And that's because someone hasn't bothered to check. These are all really important things and just things that I would really key in on. Yeah, and it's really interesting because the core of what you realize is that everything needed to be human-centered, right? Whether it was the customers or the people working in the restaurant behind the counter, like at the Starbucks example that you just gave, you had the counter, what is the efficiency? So how can you design that? What is the customer right. experience? So how can they get to the bathroom easily? How can they have a seated experience that's comfortable and they're not moving around in their chair? So Everything is considering the humans occupying that space and how to make this interior environment as enjoyable as possible. And I think that's why I got into design as well. It's like, how can we impact the people in this space? Tell me, as you, you know, came on this journey, starting in operations and then almost had a calling towards the design industry, how did T&I Design come about? Well, so early career I definitely migrated into development and was heavily involved in every job, certainly as I was moving forward in the design and architectural process. And in, I can't remember exactly the date, but around the thing, 2001, I'd been in a corporate job, left and had a transition time. And, and an ex-boss came to me and said, hey, I'd like you to help us with some projects, but you can't be a freelancer. You, we only hire either employees which I wasn't going to do at that point because I was moving to the States. This was in the UK. Or you said, you know, you need to be a company, an entity. And so uh, she said, and by the way, you were always great with ideas. So stick idea into the name. And that's really where the next idea came about. And so I, I did exactly as she told me, created a consultancy. They were my first client, fabulous client. And from there, we grew the company in, in the UK. When I say we, there was myself and then it was another individual that I worked closely with. So essentially a partner. We grew the company a little bit in the UK, and then I moved to the US about nine months later and really just built the business more in the US than in the UK. And our focus was concept development. We really excelled in concept development at that particular time. There was high demand internationally, especially in the Middle East, for new concepts and American-born or American-generated concepts. The American franchise in the Middle East is about 75%, which is pretty substantial. And there was always a demand to create new concepts there. Anyway, company grew. We were an international agency, the next idea. And we had a, a number of different services all around concept development. So interior design, of course, architecture. We had a division for branding. We had a division for operations and division for culinary. The area that we did best in always was interior design and architecture. And that was probably because I spent most of my time in it enjoyed it the most and, and we were really super successful with that. And 
to a point where we had clients that would ask us to design their new luxury homes or their new offices uh, or whatever. And, and so all of a sudden, this restaurant consultancy was an interior designer for a new office. And then we would get referred and we'd have people call us up, say, hey, you know, such and such referred me, you know, to design my new, you know, 14 bedroom home. And, um, but you're a restaurant consultant. How can you help me? And so it got a bit weird and it became evident that this was not working and we were sending mixed messages. So we split the company in 2015. We kept the next idea, the same partnership, but just from a entity standpoint. And then we set up TNI Design, which focused on only design and architecture. And I took over TNI Design and my partner kept the next idea. And as I said, we maintain the same ownership. We still work together, but that's, that's really where TNI Design was born. And we still do about 60% of our business is in restaurants and hospitalities, hotels, family entertainment, cafes. But we, we're now doing a fair bit of residential and commercial offices and co-working space and so on. And that, that's really you know, where it all started. The T&I, obviously, in T&I Design still stands for the next idea. And I think we're just excited by innovation, cutting edge ideas. And I think we bring a lot of new ideas and different ideas to the table. And, and that's really where, where we've succeeded. Awesome. Okay. So you have such a range of different projects from hospitality, the residential to commercial. No matter the type of project that you're working on, do you have a unique methodology for how you approach your design process? We'd like to. <laughs> it's not always easy because every client is different and they have their own idea. And we follow that. We follow their cues, which I think is important. I think, you know, treating the client respectfully and doing it their way is the right approach from a service and business standpoint. However, we do have a few rules. We literally will never, ever create a mood board. We don't believe in them. We feel that they're misleading. They leave a lot to the imagination. I've seen many mood boards being very badly interpreted. So our process is more driven by we create a digital twin of the space, whether that's us going and scanning the space or if it's a remote area space, we'll create it with the client and pictures and so on. And we'll spend a lot of time doing that. And then once we've done that, then we'll move directly into the 3D rendering process. And that's where we can all work together internally and with the client looking at, this is what your space looks like. This is what it can look like. You know, what do you like? What don't you like? And so we're already, we, we're past mood boards in terms of, you know, we're really about, let's just look at the space. Setting the mood is really part of discovery early on in the project and understanding the client's vision. and bringing our own ideas to that, to the table. So that's kind of why we skip it. But other than that, I think we are very client-driven and, and, and client-led in terms of, you know, how they see it. Yes, we have our standard, you know, approach in terms of, you know, where we start from digital twin, rendering, approval, drawings, and so on. But I don't think we have a very sort of specific program that we insist on following. I think we're pretty flexible in that regard. It's really interesting. I would love to see you do a webinar on like why <laughs> you should scrap the mood board. Why mood boards don't work. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is really interesting. And those are all the design schools uh, and, and eliminate that kind of process. Yeah, I think, well, I, certainly I believe that mood boards 
had their time. I don't think they're required anymore. You know, we have technology that really circumvents the need for mood boards. Now, some clients like them. We do work with clients or we partner with other design groups that use mood boards and, and that's okay. I mean, you know, we respect their process and they work with them very well. We don't believe it works for us and, and it's not something that we would do. So we literally will not do them and we will tell clients in advance, you, it's renders first. So, Got it. Well, that's fair. Okay. So let's talk about restaurant design a little bit more in depth. So for you, how would you describe the evolution of restaurant design as you've been in this industry? You know, it's an interesting question. It's certainly ever evolving. You know, we, we're working with a group at the moment, a large group that's been around for over 70 years, and we've just redone their design and their role. We're in the process of beginning to roll it out throughout their whole portfolio. What was so interesting about it is, is that some of the design, we, this is a new client to us. We, we researched them, but we couldn't find out what their original designs were. So we created a design, we went through it with the client, made some tweaks as you do. But when we opened it, quite a few people who had been with the company for a long time said, oh, you know, this is very similar to what we opened with and so on. So it's just sort of interesting how things do evolve. I mean, obviously it was a much more modern feel, but just some of the materials that we applied were similar and so on. And we did that unknowingly. In today's world, you know, there's several really important parts of restaurant design and, and one is obviously technology. I think the other and possibly from a larger design perspective is sustainability. And we're just, you know, both of them are just hugely prevalent in today's design. And we'll start with sustainability. You know, we're using a lot of sustainable materials now where we can. Hemp, for example, there's hemp wood, there's hempcrete. So if we can use those materials, we will. There's also bamboo, which is a really, really good sustainable material. We're using that. Obviously, other elements like, you know, power and using LED lighting, different types of stone, some composites are actually better than, than stone from a restaurant standpoint. So there's a lot of new materials that we're using really sort of focused on sustainability, including the obvious like reclaimed wood, which is a beautiful product. And of course, you're not cutting down a tree because you're reusing what someone else has used. So that works. And that's definitely a, a sort of a trend that I think is only going to continue. I, I can't see it reversing at any stage. In the actual design itself in 2023, we're using and we're seeing more soft curves and things like built-in shelves and, you know, sort of little enclaves and rounded archways and, and really just sort of simple ways to bring to life walls and different elements within within a restaurant. You know, a few years back, plant walls were all the rage. <clears throat> Some people still want them, but less impactful than they were because they've been so used. And a lot of people, certainly in restaurants, prefer to use an artificial plant wall so that it doesn't attract bugs and other problems that it can create. You know, and then in terms of material finishes, like more sort of rugged materials are being used, such as like exposed brick or cement walls. We're doing a project at the moment where it's all micro cement walls and ceiling and it's all curved and natural. And that is very much on trend. Technology wise is a whole different 
Yeah. Well, let's pause and talk about sustainability real quick. Sure. <laughs> right. Because sustainability has been something that I have seen brought up over and over again. I feel like it gains traction in the interior design industry. And then sometimes it gets VE'd from the project because of cost. Or it takes a lot more convincing to the owners of whatever, the hotel, the restaurant, or whatever interior environment that you're building for. So for you, as you are picking all of these sustainable finishes in your interior space, do you feel like it takes a little bit more convincing for your design? Or is the ownership of the brands that you're working with typically on board with that from the beginning? Well, we find most of our clients are on board from the beginning. The questions are more operational. For example, Hempwood, it looks beautiful. It's a wonderful finish. But if you don't treat it properly at the beginning in terms of sealing it properly and waterproofing it, it's, it's going to start fraying and, and you're going to start seeing a lot of problems with it. So these are the sort of issues that we really have to talk through and advise clients. Look, these are the risks involved with this material. So I think to your question, we're not really finding much pushback on being sustainable. It's more us advising, look, these are the risks with it. It's just, there's a reason that wood's been used for the past 5,000 years to construct buildings and, you know, and stone and all the rest of it. So, and not hemp and not bamboo. So, you know, I think these are sort of things that are really in our conversations that, that matter. But I think you're right that, you know, we've definitely had designs that have included sustainable materials that we've taken out. Not so much because of cost, and it is a bit higher, but costs are balancing, it's getting better, but more because of the, you know, what's the longevity of this finish? Again, just taking Hemwood, we had a lot of experience with that. You know, we did have to take it out of a couple of places purely because it was just too difficult to maintain and it would look shabby within a short space of time. Mm. And then how does that play in with I guess, like care for the space, right? So you're specifying these finishes. You want it to look beautiful. You want it to be sustainable. The project is completed. Everything's installed. It's great, right? So how does it get handed off to somebody who might be the cleaner or the property manager or something like that? Are you still a part of that process and informing them how to care for the space that you designed? Yes. If we're dealing with these kind of products, then we will literally all training sessions on how to deal with both cleanliness, what to do, what water can do, because really water is the big impact, water and chemicals, you know, how to work with that. If we see any problems, then we might consider adding in certain shields that will protect the material, but, but still look good. But yeah, we're very involved with that. We have to be. Otherwise, you're handing off something that is literally doomed to fail, and, and that's not going to work for anyone. Yeah. And we don't want that. Yeah. All right. So you also hinted on technology a second ago and how that's a big part of what you're doing and how you're designing a space. So tell me more about how technology is being integrated into your designs and how you see that evolving in the future. Well, the restaurants have a huge problem in America right now and in other parts of the world. And, and that really applies to staff shortages and also the cost of employees. So obviously in the US, minimum wage is a huge hot topic, but so is the availability of employees. And that sort of bank of employees, young employees, 
that restaurants would rely on, you know, students, you know, sort of a younger population, if you like, who were maybe transient. It's eroded and it's eroded since COVID, but it was actually eroding before COVID. And it's very simple why. And, and the reason is, is that corporate America and working on site is just not attractive to Generation Z. And I could give you a number of examples of my own children, friends' children. They're all working at home. They're online. They're trading. They're making way more money. They're much more comfortable. And no one's telling them what to do. So that problem is not going away. It's not a sort of transient problem. It's really a cultural issue. It's not going to change. In fact, it's probably going to get worse in terms of availability of employees. So of course, how do we address that? We can't just shut down our restaurants because we don't have people working there. So in come the robots. And that's, that's really, we're going to see, I would say, a very fast acceleration of robotic adoption over the next five to 10 years. And we're already seeing it. I mean, you've got Chipotle's making us tortilla chips with robots. You've got Flippy, which is a is basically a robotic arm that flips burgers and you know, sort of puts in the fries and, and you know, places the fries in the fryer and pulls them out and flips them over into the thing. And so all the sort of the repetitive jobs are being taken over by robots. There's a robot that will deliver to the table now. So you the kitchen will put the food onto the robot. It's got trays and then it just zooms along in the little pathways. And then the customer takes it off the robot. And then when finished, the little robot rolls back and the customer puts the dirty plates on the robot. That's so scary. <laughs> and that's what's happening today. I would say within 10 years, the evolution of this technology is going to be really substantial. And they're going to be almost like real people. And, you know, we've seen the movies and that's what it's going to look like. I mean, in China, they're developing, you know, sort of very human-like robots. And I think that's, I don't think, I'm, I'm certain that's going to really change a huge amount of what goes on in restaurants. And I think we'll see, you know, restaurants really being dominated by robots. And that's the only answer to this problem. There's bars, Royal Caribbean, for example, and there's also one in Las Vegas. They have essentially a fully automated bar where you can just say what you want through voice recognition. And then, you know, out comes your drink. And this is what's going on. So, so technology will really expand throughout the restaurant industry. And from a design standpoint, we have to figure out, well, how do we make that engaging? How do we continue to keep the customer engaged because they're now talking to robots or programming, you know, they're on tablets or at the tables or whatever it is. How do we keep them engaged? That's going to be our biggest challenge. And we have some ideas. We're keeping them to ourselves at the moment, but we definitely have to think through that. It's no longer just about environment. It's much more about how do we engage humans with robots successfully. And uh, I would say that's, that's probably our biggest challenge right now. I am terrified about this idea, to be honest. As you're sitting here talking about it, I'm just imagining the movie iRobot. I don't know if you ever seen yeah. that with Will Smith. And I'm just like, Thinking about how bad that movie went. Like, it took a turn for the worst. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, that is the way that we're going to go. And it is problematic in that it reduces, you know, we can get into an economic conversation here, but it does reduce the need for human workers. It's a very broad conversation for sure. But design-wise, it's interesting. Yeah. Okay, so as all of these different parts are evolving, we have technology 
we have sustainability, we have the operation side, the human-centered side, because humans are still going to be a part of this in some way, right? right? Because we're talking about the built environment. And with all of these different things to consider, whether you're you know, specifying material or thinking about the technology, how can those different like manufacturers of the products in your space or the technology, how can they best support you or create in something innovative for you as you are trying to design for the future? Yeah, there's, there's really two types of vendors. One is vendors that will custom make something for you, and those are obviously in the minority. And then, of course, you have the mass production vendors. Really, it's about fit to design. So we are moving towards a more custom design where we're having to rethink what the pathway looks like, you know, between tables and, you know, what a bar looks like and what it should look like. And even if we are not putting in a robot today, we know in five years time, they may have to, or the client might have to. So we have to sort of really think about that because otherwise it's going to be extremely costly in the long term. So from, a, you know, things that we consider when we're talking to vendors is, you know, what's the fit and how can they fit into our design? Do we need to adapt a little bit to achieve, you know, the application of their products? Or can they adapt to us? And then, of course, there's the physical application of these products. Uh, and I'm talking mainly materials, furniture, fixtures, that kind of thing. You know, are they easy to apply? Are they easy to install? And then also, what is the availability going to be like? And it's not just the availability today, but when we talk to chains, you know, they want to know that they can get replacement for five, 10 years. And, you know, one of the most common complaints when we talk to a new client is, yeah, well, we had this great fabric or we had this great furniture or whatever it was, and now we can't get it. And so, you know, availability, and, and I mean, long-term availability is crucial. So I think those are the sort of, those are the primaries that we think about and consider when we're, you know, specifying products and when we're talking to manufacturers and vendors. And it, okay, awesome. As we are in this, post-COVID, and I put that in air quotes for those who are just listening, <laughs> Era, is there any project coming up that is exciting for you to work on? We have a few. One is uh, we're working on Eco Village. So an Eco Village is essentially, it's a response to the institutional multifamily type of properties where you might have 300 up to 1,000, 1,200 apartments, different formats, you know, essentially, you know, sort of cookie cutter approach that, you know, obviously really works and generates a ton of money. Problem is, is that kind of living is becoming less attractive, especially to Gen Z. And so we're developing with some partners and investors, Eco Village, which is really, it's not tiny homes, but it's small homes taking land, which is probably not as usable. So it's not necessarily urban property. It's, it's more, you know, in the country or a little bit more remote. Obviously, with you know accessibility to utilities and amenities and so on, but it is exactly as it says. You know, it's it's essentially net zero. You know, we're using septic tanks, we're using solar, we're using reusable grey water, all those kind of elements, and you know, creating communities with this. You know, with this format, haven't yet opened one. We're still working on a couple of sites, but that's certainly one thing that we're super interested in. Uh, the other is, is we're working on a project on, on the planet Mars, believe it or not, where we're in the process of creating, and this is conceptual, not allowed to say who we're working with on this one, but we're creating a, 
essentially a Mars community. So that that's a fascinating project because it really what we're trying to do is look at it more from a design perspective with, of course, considering all the functionality. You can't breathe on Mars. There's insufficient oxygen. So how do we create a community which has everything that you have on Earth, you know, that works on Mars and, and can be productive? And then how do we even get the materials there? You know, you can't send humans up to build it. So again, here we are, robots would initially build it and then we would occupy. So very long-term project, uh, super exciting. What does housing look like up there? You know, how do we generate power? And of course, our biggest challenge is water. So these are all things which we're working with some engineers on and so on. But yeah, that's one of our very exciting and long-term projects. I love that. A lot of restaurants, there, by the way. So that's that we're including a lot of restaurants. Totally fun. Okay. It'll be See who the first brand is up there. Yeah. I always joke with my friends, like, if things keep going the way they're going on Earth, because sometimes I feel like I look at the news or look at current events and I'm like, oh. this is way too much. Like, send me to outer space. So yeah. now that I know you'll have a community ready for me. <laughs> no, I, I think it'll be a few, hour, a few years, but I'll keep it. Yeah, and you're not the first person to say that, I have to be honest. So yeah. I, think, I, I believe that it's inevitable that we are going to populate other planets. Maybe not in our lifetime, but it will happen. and. You know, I think the planning now will have many iterations, but I think we'll get there. I'm certain of it. Well, Robert, you shared so much with us today, including your design process, how you were called into architecture and design industry, restaurant design, hospitality, a little bit about technology and sustainability, and even the community you're designing just for me on Mars. <laughs> So if my listeners want to learn more about you and TNI Design, how should they get in touch? They can go on our website. It's tnidesign.com. All our contact information is on there. There's several other websites. There's um, globaldesignconsultant.com, which is our blog. And they can just Google us and hopefully we'll come up. So it's pretty easy to find. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Robert. And I'm, it was a pleasure to have you as a guest on the show. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for joining us this week on Thrive in Design. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Thrive in Design. And for more strategies on how your product company can innovate in the interior design industry, head to training.thriveindesign.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to create captivating content. See you next week.